So my friends, we are at the, at the end of our, our series on, called Ask Me Anything of this, this time of worship, of reminder that uh, faith in God and faith in Jesus is not just this passive receptacle where you just have to receive all these things and then feel guilty about the things you're not doing. That that's not what Christianity is about, that God loves you, your entire heart, body, soul, your mind. And the questions you have, the challenges, the things that happen in everyday life uh, matter. And when we seek out the truth, we seek out Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. As well, all the questions that aren't going to be answered here are going to address later. And if you, in daily life, if things come up, if you wonder why did this happen or what is going on, I would love to have those conversations with you. Okay, Vicki. Ready? Ready. Let's go. The transfiguration. Awesome. It's meaning for us. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right to the point. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, for those of you who don't remember, the Transfiguration is this really pretty cryptic story that takes place in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke right before um, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. It's kind of like the high before the descent down to um, Jerusalem. And so he goes up on this mountain and... Um, and with, with usually Peter and a few others, um, they're a little different than different synoptics, but there's this vision that takes place. When they see him, um, they see um, Ezekiel, they see Moses, or not, yeah, they see Moses and Elijah with him. And um, Peter's like, awesome, this is so cool, let's build three houses. <laughs> Which is another example of Peter missing the point. Um, <laughs> Well, oftentimes, that's the church. I'll get back to that. That's the way the church misses the point, too. It's like, let's build a thing. It's like, that's not really what's going on. And so, um, but then, and so, but basically, it's the mountaintop experience. It's the pinnacle. It is, it is the new mountaintop experience. What, what Jesus is doing is, is um, repeating what happened with Moses. And so Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received, um, received the vision of God and received the law, the Torah, to share with people. As well, it's repeating what happened on Mount Moriah with Abraham and um, Abraham and Isaac and going up there and receiving the covenant and being faithful. And so we have these, these three mountaintops. And then I think, I mean, the there's, there's a lot of significance. It's so rich. And so I'm going to focus on just two or maybe three. I'll see if I can stick to two. I may have to do three. Um, but the first one is revealing fully um, the divinity of Jesus to the disciples. And revealing that before that they had seen the miracles, um, they had heard his wise teaching. Some of them may have even been at the at the at his baptism and seen the dove come down. But this is overwhelming. This is overwhelming divinity, overwhelming holiness. This really is the Son of God. Peter had already said he was the Son of God, but now it's undeniable. But then, so that's the first one, is that like Jesus is truly the Son of God is fully God and fully man, and there's something amazing and holy going on. But the story does not end there. And so often, that's what the story of faith tends to be. The story of faith is this great religious experience, this great powerful thing on the mountain, and then we're like, okay, let's build a house and stay here, and then um, the rest of our lives went by. Um, but Jesus says, no, Peter, do not build that house. You've got to go down the mountain. I have to go down the mountain. We cannot stay here. And so this moment, this experience, is not for itself. The point of the transfiguration is not for itself, but to prepare for what is going to happen next. 
Because in this amazing power of the good news of Jesus Christ, that's um, the tra- Jesus transfiguring the multiple images, the things going on, the, the Moses and Elijah is not the ultimate expression of God's love for us. God's love for us is not just found in the fact that God sent Jesus to us, but all the way to the cross. And then we see, even after that, Christ's descent to the dead. Christ saying that all are redeemed. And then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. That's the amazing thing about Easter. It's Easter is this final replication, repetition of what happened on the Transfiguration, what happened on Mount Sinai, what happened on Mount Moriah. That in resurrection, we see the fullness of God's love for us, that we are included and redeemed and fulfilled, and death no longer has victory over us. That the point of faith is not to come to this powerful moment and then stay there until you die, but to follow Jesus through his life-giving ways, to spend eternity with him, to that that home beyond it. Okay, I think that was two points. But it's amazing. The Transfiguration is great. I encourage you to listen to the Sufjan Stevens song, The Transfiguration. You guys look it up on YouTube or Spotify. Um, It's really fantastic. Um, It is a song about the Transfiguration uh, with banjo. Uh, But it's like, it's super powerful, like theologically. And it's a really wonderful thing. Um, Great. All right, next. Okay, this one's long, so I'm going to read it all to you. Okay. In the New Testament, a significant amount of writings and letters were written by Paul. But it's believed that a local pastor may have authored some works that are often attributed to Paul, such as the books of Timothy. Is there an authorship dispute in the New Testament? And if there is, does it matter? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to go to the last question first. Um, so the... I mean, that's like, is there an authorship dispute and does that matter? And so does it matter who wrote the books? I think that's a really important question for Christians to grapple with. Um, with with the, holy, the holy book, with the Bible. Uh, for a long time, people claimed that the first five books were written by Moses. Um, but it, it also includes the death of Moses. And so it's really hard to write about your own death. Um, you know, and so, but it was still like, that was idea. And, and when, when scholars first started saying like, well, maybe Moses didn't actually pen this. They were like, how dare you challenge anything that's happened before? Um, so that's, that's one level. Another aspect of authorship is, is really a lot of modern ideas of authorship are, are really modern. And the ideas of this is something written that emerges from only your mind and you have ownership over it. Of intellectual property is this like brand new concept in the history of the world. And so there wasn't this sense that like Paul owned his words or, or Cicero owned his words. Like the words were, emerge, were, were separate from that. Okay, so those, and then the final little um, context thing that's important is that there was a tradition in the ancient world of um, pseudepigrapha, which is a fun word. Um, it's like writing under a false name. And so this happened a lot in the ancient world. It happened in the, in the early modern world in the Federalist Papers that in, you know, before the United States. There was, if you ever remember that from like 11th grade civics class, or 12th grade, that they, all these writers, James Madison and Alexander, Alexander Hamilton. Um, <laughs> yeah, he just, he just wrote, and he wrote, and he didn't stop. He never stopped writing. Uh, but he wrote in the, the name of other people, and that wasn't, that didn't falsify it. Um, that, that was a practice that was happening. Okay, so, scholars 
debate about some of the letters, I think there's a unanimous consent about First uh, and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, uh, Romans, and um, and Galatians and Philippians. Um, so that's like everybody is like Paul definitely wrote this. Um, I think he wrote more than that. I think he also did like Philemon and um, Colossians and Ephesians. Uh, the arguments against those are not that strong. The arguments about First and Second Timothy. Um, and Titus are stronger. A lot of it has to do with the actual language going on. Um, the Greek itself is different. It's one of those things that you read something, it's just strikingly different grammar and syntax and things going on. So it's hard to imagine. Um, but I, mean, I think that last question is the most important question. Does it matter? And like, do we read, do we read the Bible because of who wrote it or because God is there? And that is, that is the ultimate claim. Are we, are we th- looking for authorship because we're looking for ways of dismissing what is here? Um, or are we receiving this as, as God speaking in this way? That there's, not, uh, that there's nothing deceitful in that. There may be deceitful ways that the church has promoted it. And that may be true. We shouldn't be, be a church that plays on deceit and says, don't ask questions, don't challenge, don't try and read it in original language. Don't look for that. But, but the issue is, how does, um, how does God speak through these texts? And how can we receive God's words in new and fresh ways? And remember that even if Paul, the Apostle Paul himself did not write those words, or if he did, like that question is completely, it is ultimately impossible to decide in the causality of that. And so we can, I could spend a career trying to argue one way or the other, um, or I could do something else with my life. Um, and realizing that ultimately my faith does not stand or fall by whether or not Paul himself penned these letters or Paul dictated them. Because a lot of letters um, end with this funny way of like, and I, Paul, write this last bit. And it's like, wait, well, did you write, not write the first bit? Um, but it's like that my faith does not stand or fall on that. My faith stands or falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his life revealed in these words. Um, and the, the apostleship revealed in this, and the tradition of sharing the good news um, taught by Paul to the early apostles and shared in the early Christian community and continued to be shared um, in, the, in what's called the pastoral epistles of those kind of words. Okay. What do you think the most important words of Jesus are? Ha! Uh, that's, that's what it says. Okay. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, I mean, I, I, I would come back to the Beatitudes um, and the Sermon on the Mount, and I would just kind of want to like put it all and claim that in one little word, um, like an expansive meaning of, of the words of Jesus. But it's the heart of so much of what's going on is takes place in those words, and the challenge of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The inversion of expectation that goes on. That this is not a kingdom of the world. This is not a kingdom of how we assume it is going to be. Because in the kingdom of the world, the poor in spirit are not blessed. They are not happy. Malakoi is the Greek word that's translated blessed, and it's mostly translated as happy. Like outside of Matthew 5 and, and Luke, whenever the Sermon on the Plain is, it's translated as happy almost consistently. But... Um, English kind of happy seems crasser, but it really kind of gets to the heart of the contrast. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. And that just seems so dissonant to our experiences. That seems so dissonant to our expectations of the world. And it's like, wait a minute, Jesus is presenting something different. There is something else going on here. And I need to be open to a different light and responding to that. And not see these words as, um, as rules that I need to like check as a checkoff list for every one of my days and make sure, okay, I'm born spirit today, I'm, I'm hungry today. Like, that's, not, that's not the point. Um, Jesus is a um, provocative pedagogue. Like he teaches, he teaches and shares through provocation towards the goal is not for us to absorb information, but our lives to change. And how can our lives change? And there's, you know, a lot of how, how are we going to receive grace? How are we going to be open for something different? And that's the power of the, of the Beatitudes throughout, is that he, he's constantly twisting our expectation and reminding us to, to look at the world in a different and powerful way. I've avoided questions that ask you like personal questions and all that, but I think this is a good one to probably end with. Okay. And it's uh, why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? It's mm -hmm. a great question. Great um, okay. So I, it's one of those questions where it's like, how many places to start from? I think there's a one, um, and I think this is this is really important. Um, the reason why I'm a Christian is also partially why I'm a Methodist and why I make everybody sing in Can It Be That I Shall Gain over and over again. Um, and I almost, I honestly, I was debating like getting a note card and just writing in like 15 times and replacing all the other ones. <laughs> um, and I think that, like, what Charles Wesley in its um, 363, I think, in your hymnal, um, if you want to look at the words, <laughs> just, just happen to know the number. Um, and can it be that I should gain interest in saving love? Die he for me. And this, I, this, the powerful concept of God's love for me that goes to even me. Um, and the power of that, but that God is not finished. So God includes me in, in that story. So I'm a part of something beyond myself. So this, is, this gets to my own experience with God, but also the struggle and the challenge. And, and the other part, and this is, again, like why I'm a Methodist is... Um, Come, O thou traveler unknown, this, um, this other Charles Wesley hymn, which is about the wrestling with Jacob. And it's one of those as 20 stanzas that I've often threatened to sing all of it um, on Sunday morning. But it's super powerful. Um, with the most famous stanza, it's his love, his love, thou dies for me. But he goes into how, how rich and deep that is. So those, that's, a, that's a real part of my maintaining faith. And seeing, and like seeing out in the world and not finding anything that compares to the depth and richness of love, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for me. Um, and then like the counterexample of that too is I've never found arguments against God and faith like super compelling. And that doesn't mean I haven't asked them. And I, I've gone down those rabbit holes really, really deep. Uh, and, that's, and that's one of those ways that I, at the end of the day, I still see the, the open arms of Jesus on the cross welcoming me. And I think um, there was, for those of you who remember in the 1960s, there was like a Time Magazine article about the death of God, um, which was this big, big, famous provocative um, aspect. And it was kind of presented as this like, ha, 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 I'm being really risque. But what if the, like, the hearts of Christian faith is that God dies on the cross? Um, 
So the point is not, there's nothing risque about saying, is God dead? But, but is that the end of the story, or is there another story? Um, and is there a resurrection at the end? And we cannot see past that. And empirical science cannot figure out a way to test that scenario. Um, and so it is a step of faith. It is, it is reaching out beyond and using that based on what I have experienced, what I've seen, and what I've, what I've heard. Holding on to those things. And this, is, this like gets us back to the transfiguration. This gets us back to this moment where Jesus is going um, and revealing himself to the disciples to prepare them to deal with resurrection. To prepare them to deal with the cross. This gets back to the passage um, in, in Hebrews with one of like, the most powerful descriptions of God. God, for our God, is a consuming fire. And I think, I think there's a connection of that in the, in the love of God, that God draws everything to itself. A consuming fire consumes everything. Um, it, does not let it, it does not let it remain. But what happens at the other side of the story is what matters. So the consuming fire of God doesn't just burn everything and turn it to dust. We are already dust. To begin with, we're already created as dust, as Adama, as the, as the clay of the earth. What happens is we turn into children of God. We are made for love. As well, there's this powerful, you know, I, I, sometimes I preach about Christian perfection a lot more than other Methodist pastors, even though we're told to preach about Christian perfection a lot. Um, and, and why I do that is because I think it's a powerful act of faith to believe that not that I am special, because I really don't believe that I'm special, but I believe in a God who is, and who can save even me. And that my sin is not greater than God's love. And that the sin of any of us is not greater than God's love. And the brokenness of this world is not greater than God's love. And that's even though we go through these dark tunnels and hard moments, when we grieve with those who grieve, when we face tragedy, those are the moments where my faith is strongest. And I'm holding on because those are the moments that come closest to the disciples at the foot of the cross. That, that Jesus didn't give sugar-coated candy bars to all of his disciples. They tried to build the house on the top of the mountain. He said, no, we've got a harder journey to go, but at the end, you will be with me. And that is why I'm a Christian. That's why I encourage the faith, why I want to share good news, because I think this is a broken world, and that is good news in this broken world. And the good news is that you are loved. The good news is that there is more to this life than yourself, or your interests, or your hobbies, that you can live a life of love, of sharing graciousness and goodness with people. And that death is not the winner in the end. And so we should live as fully as we can now. That we can be a part of the kingdom of heaven now. We don't have to wait. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.